0: Shit Platypus Says, episode 39.
1: Executive Vice President and Chief Spokesman Mike Bass has announced that unvaccinated players who sideline themselves for not meeting local vaccine mandates will not be paid for games they miss. A handful of fan favorites, including Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving and Golden State Warriors forward Andrew Wiggins, are part of the 10% of NBA players still unvaccinated and would be eligible to play in their respective cities, New York and L.A., which both require vaccines for athletes. You know, this whole hula blue in the NBA how
0: several mm-hmm. NBA players have come out um, saying that they're not going to get vaccinated. And this has been controversial and people have been calling these people troglodytes or ignorant or stupid. Um, and I guess one of the people that has come out is the uh, Orlando Magic player, Jonathan Isaac, who gave a pretty um, articulate response to inquiries about him not being uh, vaccinated, he had COVID before, and he's just, you know, he's in an age group where he's a low risk and his immunity is up.
2: Yeah, it is kind of strange that that people are expected to have a position, and not just a position, but to act certain ways. It's very unfortunate, like, antisocial, the kind of accusations uh, and characterizations of people who, who don't do as they're told.
0: But I guess the idea is that these people are in the public eye, so they should be vaccinated, otherwise other people won't.
2: Right. I think that's that is the idea that like the NBA are like the representatives of you know, of people who like the NBA. I guess black people. I yeah. feel like it's
0: a lot about black people and skepticism of getting vaccinated.
2: Yeah, I think that's why people are so they get so upset about Kyrie irving or lebron james and wanting an official statement from people
0: i'm a bit thrown by um the quote-unquote like liberal policing all of a sudden of everyone's bodies i guess and you know like yeah uh, your your body your choice i don't know like I just
1: right feel no, like... Lit- no it's true
2: it's 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 illiberal uh yeah <laughs> it, it seems counterintuitive also to get people to get vaccines through sheer like anger and yeah. punishment,
0: yeah. I heard on NPR, um, they were talking about uh WNBA and they're like praising the WNBA because 99% of WNBA players have uh have gotten the vaccine, and only 90%, I guess, like the rate uh, in the NBA is only 90% of players have gotten vaccine, and like, and they started. Um, going off in this, this super strange assessment of the two different leagues. Like, well, you know, it's, it's been a while that we've been saying that WNBA is better anyway. Like, women just make more rational choices. And it's more of a team sport, you know, within the WNBA anyway. So it makes a lot of sense. And I was like, what the fuck are we talking about? Like, what is this debate about? I have lost the plot. Right. Anyway, right. Um, yeah, I'm... I'm I mean, for the record, I've vaccinated, like, but I'm not telling anyone to do anything. I just feel like the quote unquote, like liberal response to this and guilt tripping. And I just got this in my inbox today. Apparently, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, one of the greatest has written in Jacobin kind of calling out his teammates on this. And it's just getting a little out of hand, you know, it's just getting a little Mm -hmm. out of hand, uh, I think people's paranoia and like concerns and fears are getting the best of them. So, yeah. anyway, we're not concerned with any of that in the new issue of the Platypus Review. Um, we've got some other concerns. We're not talking about some vaccines. Um, what is in the new issue of the Platypus Review,
2: Lou? So the October issue has a panel with Chris Cuthron, Dennis Gramer, Doug Kellner, and Doug Lane on the politics mm-hmm. of critical theory.
0: It's very timely. How did that come together? Like, why transcribe this panel now?
2: Yeah, it is very timely. There is a a sense in the air. There's a kind of um, return to theory moment, a kind of like micro trend within the dead left right now. Maybe because you know, for different reasons. Maybe because of Bernie's loss. Maybe because of um, this, you know, critical race theory uh, sounding a lot like critical theory and people Mm. like, um, I think Matt Taibbi was kind of like looking around, trying to understand Marcuse. Mm. I know Mm -hmm. Jacobin's journal, right, Catalyst, uh, just published a piece uh, on Marcuse.
0: Yeah, there's this grasping at critical theory after, I think you're right to point out, disorientation after Bernie's loss, disorientation after Biden's win, we could say, right? Like, what's What moment we're in now?
2: Right. Then we have an interview by Francisco Sanchez Acosta of an Argentinian professor Antonio Rosello.
0: The Latin American Trotskyism piece. The interview with Antonio Rosello is it's a translation of the original interview, which was conducted in Spanish by our member and. We, we want to get a little conversation in Spanish going in Platypus and reach out to any Latin American uh, leftists out there. So yeah, we're going to probably host some kind of coffee break in Spanish. So if you're a Spanish speaker, uh, look out for that. I'll be there as well. Probably Lori Rojas will be there as well. We have several people in the organization who speak Spanish. So um, yeah, Platypus Review is doing some work kind of opening a new front for, for Platypus
2: Then we have a response to a previous Platypus piece by Tom Canal. So Tom is writing a response to D.L. Jacobs, who wrote about the DSA and what the DSA means with regard to the Democratic Party. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And Tom is not so sure. Tom is saying that he thinks that the the DSA might be more than a funnel into the Democratic Party, um, and that one has to keep one's the eyes on the on uh, the activity on the ground yeah, in the world.
0: I thought that the premise was that, in fact, the DSA has a lot of dissenters within who do not want to just be a shill for the Democratic Party. And the author, Tom Connell, has decided to let his membership lapse precisely because what he thought was a more um, smart political strategy of working both, quote unquote, within and without and outside of the Democrats, uh, that seem, people seem to be losing patience. Um, he uh, cites some documents from the recent convention, although I don't know, like looking into these documents and resolutions, I, I thought that, in fact, this you know, it's the same sort of idea, the Seth Ackerman. We've talked about this in the podcast. Um, I'll link the, some of those episodes in the episode description where we talk about Seth Ackerman's strategy for the Socialist Party. And so it seems a bit like more of the same for me, but but maybe it's like interesting to know that there is an active conversation and debate within the DSA about this.
2: He brings up the the French turn, the, the idea um, from when Trotsky was still alive, of entering into ostensibly politically, you know, dead uh, social democratic parties, um, which were equally, you know, as as dead as the third international parties. And Tom uses this analogy or or, or says, basically, if, if Trotsky can do it, why can't we? Which which begs the question, is the DSA a a social democratic party uh, in an international?
0: He acknowledges that uh, entrism in the democratic party, as he calls it, will necessarily involve more political subordination than the entrism in the social democratic parties. Uh, You know, there's this recognition. But nonetheless, I think that you're right to point out there's this kind of... Flattening of the issue where it's like, well, entrism here, entrism there and not taking into account um, this problem of regression that Platypus emphasizes, which is, you know, what happened from the 1940s, 1930s, 1940s to the present, right? Like, is um, is the democratic party of the United States comparable to something like the aging social democratic parties in the early 20th century that that's a question of historical consciousness we would encourage the readers of the platypus review to um, continue the debate and also send responses to our articles in in the review Um, the platypus review has a long tradition of printing uh, responses and even responses to the responses so um, we would encourage that kind of open open debate
2: Finally we have a piece by Victor Kova on the Marxist use of psychoanalysis to understand fascism. This
0: was a teaching that he gave that was quite good, I remember. Yeah, that's right. So what's in store for or what, what do you guys got cooking for the upcoming issues?
2: So we've got um already a response has come in to Chris Kutron's Afghanistan piece.
0: Ah, uh huh, cool, um, cool.
2: Which will be which I think we'll be publishing in November. Great. And uh, then we also, speaking of, of critical theory, we have an interview with Howard Island, who is one of the editors of the like Harvard-published uh, selected writings of Walter Benjamin. I see. We also have Chris Coutrone's presentation that he gave at the recent Midwest Regional Conference for Platypus mm-hmm. regarding the dictatorship of the proletariat.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great sounds good i'm now back in the midwest i'm back in chicago back in the university of chicago's coffee breaks we have coffee breaks going on all campuses sometimes we talk about the articles in the platypus review um, or what's going on in the world in general so i would encourage everyone to go check that out you can also find the newest issue of platypus review as well as any information on coffee breaks reading groups etc on platypus 1917.org thank you lou for that intro
2: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, talk soon. Bye. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Shit Clarity Says. My name is Pamela Nogales. I am one of your co-hosts. We have for you today a very European episode. Both segments have been led by our European correspondent Andreas Wintersberger. The first is a report from the front lines of a protest in the northeast of Vienna, where members of the Green Party, Extinction Rebellion and other groups try to stop the construction of a highway. Andreas interviews several of the protesters and asks them a couple of questions about their practice and how and if they see themselves on the left. The second segment is a reflection on the recent German Bundestag elections. Andreas sits down with our members Tobias, Tom and Anne. To discuss the past and future of Die Linke, the upset of expectations by the Greens, and the collapse of the left right distinction within the Green Party. Finally, they discuss the future of the German leadership of the European Union in a post Merkel and post neoliberal age. If you like the podcast, share it rate it, and write a review on Apple Podcasts to help people find us. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at PlatypusSays and Shit Platypus Says on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, here we go.
3: Since the end of August this year, several leftist and climate activist groups have built a protest camp in the northeast of Vienna in order to stop the construction of a new highway which would include building a tunnel through the so-called Lobau area, which is in part a nature reserve in the northeast of Vienna. The construction of the highway as well as the tunnel has not yet been approved by the federal government of Austria. The city of Vienna, however, has started building access roads to where the highway should be built. The protest camp is located close to these building sites. Activists tried to stop the construction of the access roads by occupying and camping at the construction sites, organizing protests, and raising public awareness for their cause. On September 11th, I recorded a few voices and sound bites from the protest camp as well as the construction sites. These included members of Extinction Rebellion, the Austrian Green Party, the so-called Jugendrat, but also Trotskyists and unaffiliated activists. Here we go.
4: Hi. come um, the the Hochmut, we come
3: the the you affiliated with any leftist group?
5: want <laughs> We're not um, leftist in particular, but we are anti-climate change and pro-climate protection politics.
3: And what's the name of your organization?
5: We are from Extinction Rebellion and we are the Red Rebel Brigade, an international organization which wants to show, by, by the color red, the blood that flows in, in us all, in all our veins, and wants to show the connection between every human being and all the other beings on this planet.
6: Thank you. And And that's
5: what we want to protect.
3: And so why are you here at this place? We're here in the Lobau, um, near the city of Vienna. What What is the aim of your protest here?
5: Well, as I said, we want to protect anything that lives. And the Lobau is very endangered at the moment because there are huge motorway building projects going on at the moment. I mean, they are going on for uh, over 20 years, but right at the moment the the building sites have been put up and, and the works have started. And we are here because with our protest, with our performance, we want to help the young people who put up camps here in the building sites to prevent this shit from happening.
3: Are you affiliated
6: with any leftist groups here?
1: Uh, no, I'm not. I'm here just um, on, by myself. Yeah.
6: Alright. Yeah. Not here in this project, uh, here I came just uh, as an individual person to support the occupation and the movement, but uh, in my life I'm more politically active, more as, uh, in an environmental politics and also in struggle to achieve more sustainable and more human-friendly economical system. So that can be taken as a leftist per- perspective, but I'm not here as a part of a group.
3: Yeah, I just want to ask, would you consider yourself being on the left?
6: Yeah. Yes, definitely.
3: Alright, so tell us a bit more, what is the aim, what is happening here, why are you here, what is the project
6: about, what is the protest about? Okay, we are here occupying a highway construction site for a week now and we want to continue as long uh, until the construction was cancelled. By this form of protests, uh, by civil disobedience, we want to achieve uh, The end of this construction, because we believe this project is very bad for the climate, we live in the 21st century in the middle of climate crisis and building new highways is a very crazy idea, it's very irresponsible, the money can go for more sustainable projects and uh, the cities should be for people, not just for cars. So that's why we are here and we wish to achieve uh, the end of this construction and also uh, of overall change of the attitude of the town to the mobility question.
1: Yeah, also for the time this place became, you know, like a kind of huge garden for the local people to come us and have a little chat with us, which was really surprising for me, like to see the huge amount of people that are actually against building the highway. And it's really sad for me because there are like local neighbors who are coming here and who are just sad about the construction um, process. so yeah, I think it's a really, really um, nice place to just meet and to build a community. I've been here for a week only and I already feel like um, a part of a very, very strong community.
3: Thanks. One last question. I saw you both have numbers written on your hand. What do they mean?
6: Oh, there are numbers for legal team in case uh, we would get arrested because we are a non-violent protest. But we believe what we are doing is right and legitimate. So if the police ask us to leave, we will refuse that and we will occupy this construction site. So possibly it can happen someone was arrested. And this is uh, numbers for our legal team that uh, we can call and uh, get a legal support. All right, great. Thank you very
3: much. Thank you. Hi. Sorry, just a question. Can you um, tell me? I just saw that there was a big discussion over there. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a big argument. Can you tell me what the argument was about?
7: Of course, yes. Um, Some of the residents here unfortunately still believe that building more roads would ease the traffic jam. But as we all know, it's the opposite.
3: Okay, so that person was against this protest. Why?
7: Uh, Because this is exactly what he believes. He believes if This road and uh, Stadtstrasse here, Stadtautobahn, is being built plus Autobahn, then, you know, he, I mean, actually he mentioned he works in the third district and he he thinks that there will be less less traffic on the so-called A23 Tangente. Which we know, and even the ASFINAG who is going to build the Luba they don't even pretend that this is true, you know. Maybe for a couple of years, two or three years, but then the induced traffic will, will have the same situation as today and have spent three billion euros.
3: So why do you think he thinks
7: that? Why does he? Because um, all the big medias and all the major parties in Vienna, this is what they kind of preach in the media, and this is what people hear, and a few uh, parties like the Green Party who oppose that project, I mean, they, we don't have that media power to, to reach the people. I mean, we really post nice. on social media, we, we, we post on, on our website, but of course it's, it's not the same.
3: And last question, are you part of any organization, any political organization? Yes,
7: I'm, my name is Heidi Segritz, I'm a member of in the,
4: the Alright, thank you very much. What's with you? You the
3: Are you affiliated with any leftist group?
1: Um, I'm in a group called Jugendrat, we're located in Vienna and uh, we care about climate justice and other social problems in our uh, society.
3: And so why are you here? What are you doing here? What is this protest about?
1: We helped to um, create this protest camp and we think it's very important to uh, stop the um, building of this sh- uh, street and the Tunnel because it's not very good for our climate and it's just a step in the wrong direction and we have to stop it and this is a good way to start this.
3: Um, and the Jugendrat, your organization, is it a leftist
1: organization? You could say so. Um, we we talk about um, climate justice on the one hand on and on the other hand we talk about um, our society and all the problems that come with it and I, I would say it's a leftist group but you could also say it's just more of a climate group but it's both I think.
3: Do you think that uh, that the fight against climate change is necessarily a leftist Activity?
1: No, I don't think so. I, I think it's uh, climate change concerns everybody in our society and um, it's, it's not just a leftist uh, thing to do, it's just a human thing to do. And I think uh, anybody who says that climate change doesn't concern them is, is just not right. Um, climate change is a really big issue in our society and in our world and we have to fight it. Yeah. Alright, thank you very much.
3: Are you affiliated with any leftist group?
8: Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm a member of a Workers' Viewpoint, Arbeiterinnenstandpunkt in German. Um, it's a Trotskyist organization
3: based in Vienna. Tell me, why are you here? Like, what is happening here? What are you protesting against?
8: The protest here is uh, directed against the building of a new highway um, in Vienna. People are trying to stop this, this highway project by occupying the building sites and demanding alternatives to car highways, especially public transport and uh, proper Planning of the city, where you can get around without the use of cars. Of course, we we support this because it's um, it's a protest directed against climate change and capitalism that causes uh, climate change and has its specific forms of transportation.
3: Do you think that the protest is a left protest?
8: Yes, of course. Why? Why? Um, because first of all, I think all or most of, of the activists uh, which are occupying uh, think of themselves as leftists um, and I many of them also make a connection with capitalism climate change and capitalism they know that there is a Connection between those two things, yes. And uh, I also think that the question of climate change is, uh, in general, a social question. And um, it, climate change, affects the working class and poor people more directly than than rich people, of course, and the capitalist class. All
3: right. Thank you very much. Thank you.
4: Wir rufen die Städten, wir rufen Lobau,
3: Talking with several activists and organizers of the protest, the underlying motive to me seemed to be that we have to act now. Something has to be done about climate change right now. But putting aside the question of whether stopping the construction of this particular highway at this particular place here in Austria, is an adequate mean for that end, it was striking that there was absolutely no consensus on whether the fight against climate change, whatever that may entail, is a project for the left, or whether it should be. During the German Bundestag election of 1983, which was the first one in which uh, the newly found Green Party took part in, the then Chancellor of West Germany, Helmut Kohl, from the conservative uh, Christian Democratic Union, said in an interview, and I'm paraphrasing here, that the protection and preservation of our treasures of nature from one generation to the next is a deeply conservative task. Now, thinking about Leszek Kolakowski, uh, whom we read in our primary platypus reading group, and his formulation that the left is defined on the level of ideas, the experience at the protest camp really raised the question of what being on the left actually means today, especially with regards to the relation of society and nature under capitalism. Does it mean protecting, quote-unquote, everything that lives, or realizing that there is a, quote-unquote, connection between climate change and capitalism? We, uh, among other activities, organized an international panel series from New York to Vienna, on the question, what does climate change? And we will put the link to these panels in the description of this episode. Thanks and take care. <laughs> Sunday, the 26th of September, Germany elected a new Bundestag, its federal parliament. The SPD came first with 25% of the vote. The conservative Christian Democratic Union, the CDU, got 18.9%, the worst result in the history of the party. The Greens, receiving 14.9%, came third, followed by the FDP, the Liberal Party, with 11.5% and the right-wing AfD with 10.3 percent. Finally, the Linke, the left party, got 4.9 percent. That puts the option of a red-red-green coalition, which means a coalition between the Linke, the SPD and the Greens, already highly unlikely before the election, off the table, since it would not have a majority within the Bundestag. That leaves two other possible constellations for coalition building, not counting another grand coalition between the SPD and the CDU. Those would be the so-called Jamaica coalition, black, CDU, yellow, FDP, so the Liberal Party and the Green Party, or the so-called traffic light coalition, red, the SPD, yellow, the FDP and the Green Party. All right, so let's talk about the German Bundestag election, which happened uh, two days ago on Sunday. I'm here with uh, Anne, Tobias and Tom, three um, members of Platypus Germany. Anne is based in uh, the Rhineland, Tom is a member of the Frankfurt chapter and Tobias is currently based in Heidelberg. Thank you guys for being on the episode. So maybe let's start um, by talking about Die Linke. Uh, Die Linke almost uh, lost half the votes compared to the last election in 2017. Um, It only won faction status actually within the Bundestag by having three direct mandates, since it not even took the the 5% threshold necessary to have faction status within the Bundestag. So, Susanne uh, Henning-Welshoff, the federal co-chairwoman of Die Linke, said in a press conference yesterday that her party has to reinvent itself. What do you make of that? Do you think uh, Sarah Wagenknecht will will make a comeback?
9: I don't think uh, she will, but it's uh, a close call, because I think Die Linke is at a point where some disturbances and changes might take place, But they still won their mandates for the Bundestag. So because of those three direct mandates, they get the full 39. And therefore, they may just regard the weak result as a result of internal discussions, internal uh, discrepancies between Wagenknecht and the rest of the party. And therefore, maybe double down on their current course.
10: Yeah, so I, I also don't really think that she will have a comeback, a comeback like in the sense that she will uh, come back to the first row, but for example Dietmar Bartsch um, who um, also was one of the chairs of the left party and was one of the candidates uh, running in the election said that he wants to include Wagenknecht more again but to be honest I think what Henning Rezo said, it's just like they don't really know what happened or they were very surprised by it. Like they didn't expect that they would be, yeah, so much down. And like, they, I think they really expected that they would like get into the Bundestag very safely. So I think also like this, right, it's like rather a phrase, like, it's not really clear what does it mean. Like she didn't elaborate on it. What does it really mean to reinvent the party yeah, so, so I don't know. I think what she means by it in a way is because she's more from like this right wing or whatever, like more pragmatic wing of the left party that they adjust maybe more like in certain questions like the NATO stuff. But yeah, I think for the whole party, it's like not really clear what it means.
11: Am I right thinking that those three candidates who have gotten the direct mandates, they are more in line of Sarah Is correct, right? are a lot of other uh, politicians in those um, high positions in the country are not. So they have to integrate those two lines in the party. And, yeah, that's the task, I think, they see before them. I'm not sure how they're going to do, but, yes, that's the aim. That's what I understood of those um, sessions, those saying of them.
3: Yes, maybe let's talk about that that debate or... um inner-party debate within the Linke, um, which also was part of of uh, a controversy that happened within the election campaign of the Linke when Sarah Warnknecht um, published her book um, called Die Selbstgerechten in, in German. So, can you tell us a bit, what what, what is the split about? What does it mean, where, where do the front lines lie, so to speak?
9: I think it's something that has been going on for quite some time, and essentially, Wagenknecht in her book accused parts of the left and she didn't, as far as I know, directly single out the party, so she didn't say it's a problem of the party, but rather of the left in general, have become uh, what she calls lifestyle leftists. What she means by that is people who declare their own lifestyle to be what is left and speak from a position of arrogance and disregard essentially economically disadvantaged people in favor of identity politics around uh, gender, race, and so forth. And um, she regards this behavior as one of the reasons why the party is in decline. A lot of people accused her of reactionary behavior essentially saying that she was adopting talking points from the right and uh disguising them as some left uh correction
10: so yeah maybe to build up on that like there was even like i don't know some very small kind of unit or chapter of the party or a few members who wanted to kick her out of the party but which like failed which was kind of expectable like um So that was not really wanted, right, because it would have, like, made the split too obvious in the election campaign. Uh, But I think about what, like, Tom said, I think, like, to make it very short, the dispute, it's about, like, an identity politics of workers versus an identity politics of minorities. This is really at stake. And, yeah, I I think, like, we maybe also have to talk about where the uh, Linkspartei comes from, right, like... It was from the beginning like a very, you could say, very awkward project because it came partly out of the PDS, the successor party of the um, SAD, the former ruling party of the GDR, and partly of a split of the SPD, which split basically because of the uh, neoliberal politics of the Social Democrats in the um, coalition government in the beginning of the 2000s. And it was from the very beginning like a project that kind of united a lot of different flavors of the left let's say in a not very coherent way so in that sense it's like nothing really new what we see right now
3: let's maybe um talk about the greens a bit so the greens they actually did not perform perform as well as expected i think while voting polls stated that they they were up at at 25% at the beginning of the summer. They only managed to to get 14, 14 14.8% in the end. And all three of you were involved in the organization of a platypus panel uh, named what was the green party for the left. The panel happened at the end of of August and we will uh, put a link to the panel in the description of this episode. So to me it seemed that in organizing the panel, you focused on bringing out the origins of the Green Party within the new left, within the deeper history of the left and its disintegration. So what relevance, if any, does this history um, that you try to brought out within the panel organization have for the Greens as we as we see them today, especially for the Greens as they will be most likely in one of the constellations for a uh, possible government coalition
10: so i I don't know i would say like after the panel that the let's say the very small or very like dim connection between the history of the new left and the greens nowadays at best is like this kind of narration of progress since the new left kind of this narration that the new left didn't succeed in all the points but it kind of parts of it got mainstream and that's a progress and the greens are a political expression of that i would say that was uh, mainly the um you could say that the whole argument of hans christian ströbele who was on our panel and who is like um this kind of long-standing icon of the of the left within the greens i would say otherwise there is really hardly any connection so for example even between the uh, young greens nowadays, of whom we also had a representative on the panel, so we asked them whether they think that they do something similar like the eco-socialist wing of the Green Party in the nineteen eighties, and I I think we didn't really get um, an answer to that, not a very clear one at least. But I really would say that like a lot of the things, for example, the young greens nowadays defend as progress kind of as progress that has to be somehow defended against whatever the right. That's uh, things, for example, the eco-socialist wing in the 1980s criticized heavily and would have seen as, I don't know, instrumental rationality and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I think it's it's really confused, especially since the not only the Greens, but especially young Greens, like had a huge generational shift within the last years, so a lot of these activists, they got politicized or they got uh, into the realm of the uh, um, young Greens within the last two or three years. So, yeah, I don't think that that's really any... It, yeah, I think for them really does it doesn't have a, um, relevance for them today.
9: Right. I think it's a repetition on a lower level. And I think it's pretty clear. If we look at uh, our panel and the history of the Greens... It was pretty clear, and Thomas Ebermann was very good on this, to really represent those leftists who then left the party before it ever came into power with the first uh, red-green government because they they made uh, too much of what they called realpolitik. So just accepting the pressures of uh, reality and succumbing to the pressure of uh, the need to accumulate capital or something like that. The point is, right now we have those young ostensible leftists in the Fries for Future movement, we have those in the uh, Young Greens, and there's uh, quite a large margin, uh, which is part of both. And when I joined their protests and uh, spoke to them, they always have this kind of radical way of talking about the future and the world this climate crisis is this final catastrophe that will either cause us to break out of capitalism and we have to ask the social question otherwise this can't be resolved and so forth so but it's already on a lower level because the positions are worse articulated the connection to why is capitalism this big problem is articulated in a much worse fashion and it's also much more disconnected to the policies they advocate for and then as soon as the greens come into government come into power i think the same thing will repeat they will have to uh, answer to the pressures that lie on a capitalist government at the current time and i think it won't be pretty i think there are these visions of how we could make a more green more uh, socially just future and I think it will be disillusionment because in essence it will be management of how to keep profits up while also reducing carbon emissions which can't be pretty and therefore I think the only question is will the next government take the task of reducing carbon emissions seriously which I think will create disillusionment with what that really means, or will it postpone this uh, task further, like the last governments did, then there might be some idea of eventually, if we just get them to respond to it, we can create this uh, better future. So ironically, if the Greens get what they want, they will be disillusioned. If they don't get it, they might just stay illusioned.
10: To come back to the question, like, what is the connection or like um Tom uh, already mentioned now Thomas Ebermann, who was the third speaker on our panel, and he left the Green Party in 1990 with other kind of radicals. But there has been always since the founding of the Greens, there's different wings. And I think what's maybe interesting that um the two chair people of the Green Party right now, Annalena Baerbock um, and Robert Habeck they are kind of the first chair people of the party that were not selected according to this uh, before very important right left scheme so before that basically everything that happened in the green had to happen like including both wings kind of and the left wing is basically the people who didn't leave in 1990 with kind of other radicals but they stayed and this was throughout the history of the greens basically until the end of the last decade, kind of until the 2010s, was kind of the thing. This change, I think, marks maybe an even like further distance, right, from from this history, because before at least these wings kind of reminded of like, right, like that there was like this, conflict in the 1980s and beginning of the 1990s.
3: Thank you. There's another thing I'd like to like to address. Uh, in Platos, we, we often speak about the so-called death of the millennial left. We hosted panels on this question, published articles that we also can link to in the description of this episode. And we saw that a lot of members of the millennial generation, um, a lot of leftists of that generation threw their weight into political phenomena such as Jeremy Corbyn in the UK or Bernie Sanders in both of which failed politically in recent years so where do you see this phenomenon of the millennial left taking up these sorts of projects uh, in in those big terms in Germany in the Germ- in this German election interestingly we see that the number of people who voted for the first time in this election, so very young people, voted for the most part for the FDP, the Freedom Party, and the, the shortly right after that is the vote for the Greens. So we see younger members, we see younger people in, in Germany not voting for, or not as much voting for um, the party, Die Linke, but rather for the Greens and the FDP. So where do you see this phenomena of the death of the millennial left within the the context of the German left and the recent Bundestag election?
10: So maybe like to start with, I think like this poll you're quoting, I think it's referring only to people who voted for the first time. So I would say this is already, you could maybe even say like a post-millennial left phenomenon, right? Yeah, I think what's maybe more interesting with regard to the millennial left is maybe to look at who got now into the Bundestag, for example, for the SPD and for the Greens, because the factions got a lot younger. Um there's, for example, now in the Bundestag, Annika Klose, who said um, last year in our German speaking conference in Leipzig, he, um, she um she was on the panel i think the crisis of neoliberalism she's for example now in the bundestag also jamila Schafer i think who also attended a reading group of ours as far as i know kevin kuhnert and like i think those are rather kind of the products of the millennial left and there's maybe interesting to see because like you asked like what is the kind of the comparable project of the millennial left right if you compare it to for example great britain or the us and i think from some perspective, it was like this red, red, green coalition. Because a lot of this young cadres now from the SPD who got into the Bundestag, they actually were very much in favor of it uh, during the 2010s. But I think like right now, it's like, I don't know whether they're really sad that it's not possible to form a coalition government with the left party. I think uh, really not. And maybe the last point, um, which is maybe also interesting to bring up, is that uh, on uh, like last Sunday, there was also part of the election. in Berlin was kind of this vote on whether the kind of local government, the Berlin state government, should deal with the legislation that might expropriate in the end um, kind of big housing companies. And they got a majority. And before that, for example, Kevin Kühnert said like, I won't vote in favor of that. And I think like a lot of, kind of in the radical left were disappointed by that right which like shows that they are much like they put much more hope into like Kevin Kühnert who is like kind of more like the symbol for like again like a more left SPD and I think this is like this is already or will be definitely disappointed by like this millennial generation now sitting in the Bundestag because what they're going to do like Maybe probably or the only thing, um, where the SPD will be part of will be a coalition of SPD Greens and Liberals, and that's not like really kind of this left project, kind of the millennial left. Yeah, was in favor of.
9: So remarkably, uh, Germany didn't experience such a uh, nothing uh, remotely as successful, even though they both failed uh, as Corbyn or Sanders. Nothing that gripped uh, civil society. Uh, in that way and got people excited um, I agree with Tobias that um, this kind of fever dream of a red red green uh, government um, is the most comparable um, but the left party was on a downturn for quite some time now they started uh, the whole election campaign with polling around 7% and I, t- I absolutely agree If the Greens go into coalition with either the uh, CDU, the Christian uh, Democrats, or the SPD, they will have to go into coalition with the FDP either way. And if you look at just central proposals and promises of both parties, the FDP is further away than any other party uh, from the Greens when it comes to, for example, uh, carbon emissions. And Christian Lindner, uh, so the head of the FDP, already remarked that with him there won't be, the German government won't go into deficit, it won't raise taxes. So how are you going to finance any fundamental transformation of the German economy towards carbon neutrality without raising taxes, without going into deficit, and I mean, the only way is austerity, right? The only way is austerity, and probably the FDP will um, cave on that. Probably they will go into deficit, but nevertheless, they will probably also produce some austerity measures. So, it ends in austerity.
3: I mean, it's, it's interesting that um, still the SPD and the CDU, the, big, the two big parties of the establishment in Germany again got the majority of the votes. They came in first and second, first the SPD, second the CDU, CSU. But still, nonetheless, they are um, in a more or less steady decline since at least 60 years. So the CDU, CSU got the worst results in its history. How do you think the crisis of the established parties, the crisis of neoliberalism will play out over the next period of the Bundestag, in terms of leftist politics, or possibilities for leftist politics.
11: Let me just quickly say that uh, on the international level there are more authoritarian answers or solutions to the crisis of neoliberalism in the last years. And so, to me, even before this election, I was expecting People or politicians like Friedrich Merz to come up more to be in, to be like preferred by different constituencies like voters. So I don't know why, but I see in those um, talks now after the election last Sunday, especially from politicians like politicians from the SPD, that they have they are maybe in favor of even of great coalition or to work with FDP to go more in this direction to have like strong answers for example Olaf Scholz this chancellor candidate he never even mentioned mentioned this minimal wage topic he was really he said nothing on this really so i think there's a preference to follow uh, answers that we can see on international level like in the direction in their how to position themselves i see this but I'm not sure how it
9: will come out in the end. I want to say that Germany needs to act just in the very profane uh, manner of transformation is needed economically. However, I and this is in, in the first instant this has nothing to do with leftist politics, but I feel that German politics is not prepared for it after 16 years of Merkel In the US, I think Trump has shook the political establishment, and Biden rides on that. Biden is no longer just um, the same as he would have been if Donald Trump was never elected. However, uh, Merkel established a way of doing policy in Germany where she would wait until the last possible minute and then act as little as possible. So there was no Lever, so to speak, to criticize her. And Scholz, the probable next chancellor, if the SPD comes into government, kind of represents a similar style. At least he presented himself this way during the campaign. So it may be that the politically safest bet in Germany is to wait it out. The other option is to actually try to make the direly needed changes to the economy towards carbon neutrality and so forth which would be an extremely uh, risky political project and I think that this I'm hoping for the latter because I think for the left the latter would be better because if something fundamentally is done then I think Disillusionment happens for the Greens, which and those um, currents in the left who have supported this new ecological angle that the Greens represent, which may be an opportunity to uh, raise awareness of what is missing for Platypus. While if the cur- current or Merkel's style of politics is continued and the next government tries to wait it out and then i think this powerless posturing of change is needed that the left and the greens were doing before the election will continue and it's uh, abysmal it often rests on this idea that those in government are just too stupid to read IPCC reports. And it feels like that that's the political horizon. And it does not disillusion, rather it creates illusions of if just uh, some person with the brain of a 16-year-old gets into power, they will be able to do better policy. So it creates this wrong idea of what the environment and the pressures in politics are
10: yeah so I, I'm, I'm really not sure like um, how and in what way like this election is a manifestation of the crisis of neoliberalism or like maybe even a post neoliberal turn because on the one hand yeah like the, the vote count for the uh, former two big parties the conservative and the social democrat like kind of shrank which could be like an indicator an indicator right because they governed the country um this 12 out of the last 16 years but on the other hand like who really won were the greens and the liberals and they also have been in coalitions and responsible for like this neoliberal policies that have been implemented before so i'm I'm really not sure mm, sure about that but what i maybe find interesting that like how and in that sense, I would like maybe agree with Tom a little bit that this tendency seems to be like a little bit too weighted out. Like a few weeks ago, there has been like this internationally quite huge scandal um, that I think uh, Australia canceled kind of a nuclear boat deal with France and instead entered into a security alliance with US and Great Britain which I would interpret as a continuation basically of the the Trump administration tendency towards more like bilateral or trilateral um, agreements. Um, and I think it was a big topic in France and France was not happy very obviously, but I didn't have the feeling that it was a topic in Germany at all. Like, right, like this also like um, Biden's policy on China and stuff like that, that this is basically continuation in a way of like, you could say post post neoliberalism is not really is not really clear, not really mentioned, and I think you could say that with like Scholz is maybe a similar person like Biden in a way, like a similar figure, because of course he was one of the main proponents at the beginning of the two thousands of this neoliberal policies, right? And now, um, for example, during Corona as the finance minister, like he. Increased the deficit deficit spending immensely which kind of the left in the spd interpreted oh finally he's listening to us you know like we told him all the 20 years that it's like the state has to invest and in blah 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 now he does it but i think it's like a huge like misconception conception because it's like uh, it's not because i don't know schultz like changed his general view but it's because of like the necessity that grew out of this crisis So in that way, like, Schultz is also, like, right, as Tom already mentioned, he, like, his main promise was basically, I'm the better continuation of Merkel than the CDU candidate is, but at the same time, I will do it different than in the past. So there is, like, also the similar element of, like, a break, but also continuation with the past.
3: Thank you, guys. We reached our time limit, I think. Um, Thank you so much for being on the episode. Thank you so much for your reflections. And, yeah, take care.
10: Thanks for having us. Bye.
0: What are the implications of this election here in the united states i mean do we have a sense of how this might
10: affect america's relationship with germany it probably won't and that's because there are a couple of reasons here the first one is that both of the, the frontrunners, the people who were really running to try to replace Chancellor Merkel, they spent the entire campaign trying to stylize themselves as Merkel's successors, trying to be as Merkel-like as possible. Now also, they're going to be governing within a coalition. So that coalition means that they're going to be
2: drawing from the left, from the right, Uh, they're gonna have to share power and compromise with so many different political parties sprawling the ideological spectrum. They're not gonna really see a whole lot of change. Now, Joe Biden has already had a very good relationship with Angela Merkel, as did his his, uh, predecessor from before, Barack Obama, who had a very close relationship with
10: Angela Merkel. And with this Angela Merkel light, who's probably gonna be taking the chancellorship next, we can expect very little change in transatlantic relations.
0: This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society, featuring original tracks by Thomas Bilagy. Platypus is an international membership-based organization that hosts reading groups, public fora, research, and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication the platypus review to contact learn more about platypus or to access the entire archive of platypus reviews and panel recordings please visit us online at platypus1917.org that's the word platypus followed by the numerals 1917.org bye